everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's podcast, we're covering several different topics, ranging from taxation to the newest wrinkle in time film. First, Kevin Schmasing, research fellow with the Acton Institute, speaks with Robert Kennedy on justice and taxation. Robert Kennedy is a professor in the Department of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas and is the author of Acton's Christian Social Thought Series volume on tax policy. Following that, I sit down with the founder of New Holland Brewing Company, Brett Vanderkamp, for some follow-up questions after his Acton on Tap lecture on how entrepreneurs make a freer society. Lastly, on Upstream, Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Sarah Arthur, the author of an upcoming biography of Madeline Langle. Bruce and Sarah discuss Langle's book, A Wrinkle in Time, in light of the recent film adaption. So without further ado, let's jump into the first discussion. Hello, Acton Podcast listeners. I'm Kevin Schmazing. I'm a research fellow with the Acton Institute. And among my responsibilities at Acton, I serve as the editor for the Christian Social Thought Series. This is a collection of short books that seek to apply Christian social thought or Catholic social teaching more specifically to various economic and social policy matters. And our latest volume in the series is hot off the press, Justice in Taxation. It's a timely volume, I guess you could say, because here, at least in the United States, we're in the middle of tax season. The April 15th filing deadline is right around the corner and also A few months ago, President Donald Trump signed into law an overhaul of the U.S. tax code. So if there is ever a good time to talk about taxes, I guess it's right now. And we're pleased to have joining us today the author of that CSTS volume, Justice in Taxation. His name is Robert Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is currently a professor in the Department of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And at the same institution, he also taught business management for many years. So he's well-positioned to talk about this topic. Bob Kennedy, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. It's good to talk to you. Well, I wanted to start, Bob, with a question about kind of the basic organization of the book, um, because you spend a number of pages talking about not taxes at the beginning, but instead talking about Catholic social teaching, specifically some of its principles like the nature of the person, the common good, ownership, and so on. And I'm wondering, why did you think it was important to spend so much time talking about these principles before you got into the details of tax policy? That's a great question, Kevin. I think one of the most insightful things that any moral philosopher has said in recent decades uh, is the observation by Alistair McIntyre, that our ethical vocabulary has been corrupted. So often today we use the same words in conversation, but we attach very different meanings to them, and we don't uh, go to the trouble of explaining what meanings we have in mind. Now, this is really a problem in applied ethics because all the discussions in applied ethics are downstream from these conflicts in ethical theory. And unfortunately, this is true in the social tradition as well. So concepts like the common good, ownership, and especially justice uh, are equivocal and widely misunderstood. So I thought it was necessary to give an explanation of what I think these concepts really mean in the social tradition as a foundation for talking about the rest. 
That's very good. I appreciate in particular, Bob, I think I'm remembering a phrase uh, in the book. I think maybe you were talking about the common good, one of these principles where you said that uh, a great deal of intellectual mischief had been done under, under the terms of the, the common good. So I think you're absolutely right. It's important to, to clarify these concepts before we move forward. Um, an argument that I've heard, uh, you probably have as well, and this can come from a, a lot of different directions. It could be a Catholic or a non-Catholic, a liberal or conservative, might say something along the lines that the church should just stay out of matters like taxation. It's a question of economics. It doesn't really involve the faith. It doesn't involve religion. Um, and so the church should uh, kind of butt out of uh, participating in this kind of conversation. Now, obviously, since you spent many hours uh, just writing a book about this subject, about applying Catholic social teaching to taxation, you disagree with that. You think that uh, the Catholic social tradition has something important to say about taxation. So how would you reply to that objection that uh, religion or Catholicism in particular should stay out of such questions? Um, what, what would you say to those to people making that argument? Well, I would say several things. Uh, it's not a new argument, by the way. Uh, early Christians uh, in the history of the church were criticized for um, uh, making comments. In fact, some were, were even persecuted for making suggestions about uh, public policy. But uh, you know, it's true that, that uh, questions of public policy, whether economic or not, uh, always have an ethical dimension. I don't think that in a society like ours, any serious thinker about ethics, uh, let alone representatives of religious traditions, which have a history of reflection on these issues, should be systematically dismissed from public discussions. Now, secondly, bishops, uh, priests, religious, say nothing of lay people, they don't lose their prerogatives as citizens on account of their faith or their offices. Uh, John Kennedy and Mario Cuomo taught us that uh, people of faith have a duty to keep their faith condition, their convictions entirely private, and that's simply wrong. Despite what some people suggest, uh, people of convictions of all sorts have a right to voice their opinions on public matters. Um, third, you know, any religious tradition, certainly major religious traditions, are an accumulation at least of, of human wisdom about uh, uh, common life. Uh, you know, you don't need to be um, uh, someone who shares the faith of believers to acknowledge that religious traditions have contributed important moral insights to our lives. People of faith should not demand the final word in a pluralistic society, but I think they've, they've earned a hearing, and that's what we're trying to do with a book like this. Okay, very good. And another argument that, uh, again, I think you've probably heard, and I certainly have. I've come across it uh, in print before. This is one that comes from, uh, I guess you could say libertarians, although not all libertarians make this argument, but uh, I think that's kind of the corner where it, it usually emanates. And that, that's the argument that taxes, taxation in and of itself um, is invalid or unjustified. That is that government coercively taking taxes from its citizens, this is not a voluntary situation, obviously. This is essentially the equivalent of theft. It meets the definition of theft. And so taxation can never be justified. Does the church's social tradition have uh, a counter argument to that? Or if it doesn't explicitly, what would you or what might the tradition say in response to that argument? 
Well, indeed, the tradition has, has a fair amount to say about that. In fact, I wish it had more to say about other dimensions. It, it's focused on this question uh, quite a bit. Let's, for just a moment, review the libertarian argument. And the argument usually goes something like this, that um, uh, government is justified uh, in charging fees for the services that it provides. Uh, the French economist uh, Frédéric Bastiat in, in the 19th century laid this out very clearly. Uh, so uh, a citizen is, uh, is, uh, has a duty in justice to pay government for the services that, that he uses and that he requires. Uh, but beyond that, uh, Bastiat's claim is that uh, citizens have no obligation, in fact, no desire to pay for things that, uh, uh, that, that don't benefit from them, that don't benefit them. And any government that uh, takes tax money uh, to pursue other uh, objectives uh, will have to do this by coercion because citizens aren't going to offer it voluntarily. And that amounts to a little more than theft. But this, what lies behind this is a fundamental idea of the, uh, the state, the common good, justice, and so on. It's just rejected by the Catholic social tradition. The relationship of a citizen to the state is not like your relationship or mine to, uh, say, a merchant or, uh, uh, or somebody who offers services. When I go to a, to a store to buy an item, uh, or if I hire a plumber to fix my pipes, I owe that person fair value for what I receive. Uh, and that exchange completes our relationship. But the relationship between a citizen and the community and a citizen and the state, which is part of this larger community, uh, is really very different. Uh, some of the obligations I have to the community are defined by the state, and the state rightly enforces those obligations. So I have a duty to pay taxes to support the proper activities of government, whether or not I benefit immediately and directly from those activities. But let me add something else here. But the libertarians are not entirely wrong in their criticism of this. There's, there's another view uh, at a different point on the spectrum uh, that uh, claims that the state has a, a much broader right uh, to, to acquire our resources. History shows us that the common inclination of any state is to expand its activities and consequently to demand higher and higher levels of taxation. Some philosophers today uh, argue that uh, the state itself creates property rights in virtue of the fact that it protects property rights. And as a consequence, since the argument goes, there would be no property without the state's protection. The state has a right to claim any amount of property that it needs in order to pursue its objectives. Now, the Catholic tradition reflect, uh, rejects both views, although I think it doesn't reject them as strongly as, as it should. Uh, it insists on a much larger role for the state than libertarians would approve, but it also insists on a much more limited role for the state than uh, uh, the other side would approve. Uh, so it, it strikes something, a, a balance in the middle, and uh, I, I would like, in fact, to see the, uh, the tradition say more about just where that balance is struck and, uh, and so on. But it does justify a level of taxation that that goes beyond what libertarians would approve. Right, okay. So this kind of goes back uh, to, the, to the original question where we covered Catholic social principles because uh, really what you're saying, to, to understand the Catholic view of, uh, 
of taxation, we need to understand properly the individual's relationship to the state and to the common good. And you've identified the two extremes, the the radical libertarian and the statist or the socialist position, um, which which you might say are rooted in different understandings of the human person and his or her relationship to the state. With, yes, that, with that's, it, that's exactly right. Okay. If we've established that there is some obligation uh, to pay taxes to the government, that the government is justified in acquiring income in this fashion, of course, as you implied in the remarks you just made, there's still a, a vast middle ground. There's a lot of space there to take out different positions on just how much the government should take and just what the character of those taxes should be. So that's really kind of where the action is at in terms of uh, debating American tax policy and among Christians debating uh, what is justified, what justice would suggest is the right approach. You address some of that in the book. Uh, what I especially like is towards the end of the book, you have uh, a series of, I guess you could call them bullet points. This is your conclusion. Um, and two sets of bullet points, one, one of which says what the church does teach or what the tradition does teach us, say to us about taxation. And then the second set where you identify what the tradition does not teach us. To me, that second set, that language of does not teach us, seems to imply that there are some myths and misunderstandings out there concerning what Catholic social teaching says about taxes that you wanted to identify and address in this volume. Could you give us an example of maybe one or two of what you think are uh, the most popular sorts of misunderstandings of the social teaching and how or why those are mistaken? Yes, of course. Uh, let me preface it by saying that uh, the, the church's teaching uh, on, on social matters is not complete and comprehensive. And so in many situations, and taxation is certainly one of them, in fact, the church has said relatively little so what tends to happen is that people who work in the area of social ethics out of the Catholic tradition, um, I think, have a tendency to fill in the blanks uh, from secular social theories. And sometimes they're importing something into uh, the discussion that really doesn't uh, cohere well with, uh, with uh, the Catholic tradition. So let me mention two, as long as you brought this up. First of all, it seems to me that the social tradition does not teach us uh, that all social issues should be addressed through government action. Uh, in fact, the, the social tradition uh, begins with the idea that uh, uh, society is, that the community as a whole is the larger element and the state or government is simply one dimension of that element. So the community as a whole may have a set of responsibilities that doesn't belong to the state, uh, at least not properly. Uh, and we can think about these in terms of culture and, and all sorts of other things. Now, having said that, it's true that a community can delegate to the state some things that are more properly the responsibility of the larger community. And modern societies have tended to do that with things like education and health care and, and uh, welfare, care for the poor, and, and so on. But these are really the responsibilities of the larger community and, and not uh, properly and exclusively the responsibilities of the state. 
the church does uh, warn us in various places, including uh, St. John Paul's encyclical Centesimus Annus. It warns us about uh, the tendency toward totalitarianism of, of modern states, and it's important to push back against that. Now, a second misunderstanding uh, is that it's the responsibility of the state uh, to, to address inequalities of income and wealth, and that wealth ought to be redistributed uh, through taxation in order to uh, increase equality. Um, it's a basic misunderstanding of the meaning of distributive justice, which is one reason why I, I went into that earlier in the book. Distributive justice does not authorize us to take from private persons what they have lawfully and honestly acquired uh, in order to give it to people who have, uh, who have less. Uh, distributive justice is about distributing something that already belongs to the community and um, distributing it fairly to people who, who may who may need it or who may have an obligation to uh, uh, to address the problem. Uh, so the, the idea that, that one of the fundamental functions of taxation is redistribution uh, has very little foundation, I think, uh, in the, the Catholic social tradition. Uh, it, it's sort of a modern conceit that, uh, that we really need to address. So you've gotten a taste, I think, for what the book contains. There's a lot more in the book. Thanks, Bob, so much for sharing that with us today. The title, again, is Justice in Taxation. The author, Robert G. Kennedy. It's available at all the usual online retailers. It's in both ebook and print book form. It's available also, of course, at the bookshop at acton.org. Thanks, Bob, for joining us today. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. My name is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and today I'm sitting down with Brett Vanderkamp, who just gave a lecture on how entrepreneurial work makes a freer society. Brett Vanderkamp is the founder of New Holland Brewing Company, and luckily we were able to hear him give a speech for Acton on Tap tonight. Thank you for sitting down with me, Brett. Wonderful to be with you. So I want to go back and cover some points that you made in your talk. And the first one that I was hoping you could maybe expound a little bit more on is the point that you made earlier when you said that profit is an indicator of your helping others. And I was wondering if that realization was something that came about naturally through the course of your entrepreneurial work or if it's something that you knew that you were intentionally chasing from the, the beginning. Um, it's a great question. The, the idea of profits as a business owner when I started not being trained in business in any I had no college courses probably thankfully in business um, but the idea of profit was something we knew we had to achieve but we didn't necessarily grapple with like how much profit we needed and why we needed to uh, make a profit other than while well, we wanted to make some money and ultimately after some you know experience and study like I you know um, that of diving into the Austrian school a bit, what you come to realize is that profits are an indicator. Um, they're a signal to you as the entrepreneur that you're doing something right for the consumer. Um, now, I know that's not really widely you know, publicized in, in America today, or the world for that matter, but it's, it's the only way that you can really tell that you're doing a service for the consumer. 
and uh, the, the community at large. And so it was really through this realization uh, and really trying to put bread on the table for our employees and their families and such that we realized, hey, we got to make money. Um, when we first started, we were a little bit altruistic and we didn't really, I think, fully appreciate the value of profits beyond just, hey, we made money. So as kind of a segue into that, you also make a point that you don't necessarily have to own a business to be an entrepreneur. And that may go hand in hand with the services aspect of what you were saying, but can you maybe expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, I think you know what often gets, um, you know, historically we talk about the entrepreneurial spirit. Oh, that person has such an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, in our business we talk about it um, sometimes. More often than not, we refer to it as an entrepreneurial mindset. And. What I talk about in my talk a little bit is, is the, uh, the entrepreneur really is a promoter of profits. That's how I like to define it. And well, I like that because it really opens up um, who can be an entrepreneur. I think the traditional definition of who an entrepreneurial, excuse me, an entrepreneur is, uh, really speaks directly to the business uh, woman or the business man. And in this, you can be a participant in a business, you can be a participant in a even, I, I dare say, and this could come with some scrutiny, in a non-for-profit organization, uh, as long as you are promoting profits. And that is your indicator. If you're able to provide a good or a service for profit, you're doing good. And my last question would be, um, toward the end of your talk, you stated that the entrepreneur is a hero. So in that context, what exactly do you mean by a hero? Well, I think there's a distinction that needs to be made sometimes, and, and I'm speaking from my own experience here in America where capitalism gets a bad name, and oftentimes entrepreneurialism gets lumped in with capitalism. And they are connected, but I don't think they're the same. A capitalist provides the entrepreneur with capital and resources to provide the service. And in, in my mind, that is the most heroic role in our society today where you are providing the service to the average consumer or to the consumer to make their life better. Now there's some assumptions I'm making here but I'm talking about the general uh, the general on a whole good. So again and then it drives back to profits. With those profits is a signal you take those profits and you drive um, them back into your business to grow your business and provide more goods and services for the consumer. And to me, that's the most heroic thing you can do. You're not co uh, using coercion to force people into uh, buying something from you. You're not uh, using force to tell them what they need to do. You're providing a good or service that they find value in and they're willing to part with their hard-earned profits or excuse me, their hard-earned money and property for those goods and services. And to me, that's heroic. All right. Well, this is Caroline Roberts. And thank you so much, Brett Vanderkamp, for that. Well, thank you so much. I love what you guys do at Acton. All right. This is Caroline Roberts for Radio Free Acton. You were a top student. But look at you now. You can't keep using your father's disappearance as an excuse to act out. Is that his work? What's it about? Their dad, he wanted to touch the stars. 
imagine that the ant here wants to get to her other hand. The quickest option is to walk across the street. But it turns out a straight line is not the shortest distance between two points. Not if you use a fifth dimension. It's outside of the rules we know of time and space. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Upstream, the pop culture segment of Radio Free Acton. I am your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week I'm talking with Sarah Arthur, who is the author of the upcoming A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Lengel, author of A Wrinkle in Time, and that will be published by Zondervan HarperCollins this August. And uh, astute listeners will have figured out that we are going to be talking about Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time, the book, and the recent film. So hello, Sarah. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's a great pleasure. And um, well, let's get started. We we both read the book. I, I reread it after maybe 40 years over the weekend and saw the film last week. And I obviously prefer one to the other. And I'm certain you're the you're the same. I, I've read certain things that that you have written about it thus far. So um, tell me a little bit, first of all, about the history of Madeline Lengel, a little bit of her biography and uh, give us a little sampler of, of what's going to come out in your upcoming biography of Madeline Lengel, and, and talk about uh, the impetus for writing A Wrinkle in Time, and, and keeping in mind that A Wrinkle in Time is only book one of a five-book series. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's a pretty significant book, though, not only because it launched some more writing like that for her, but it was, it came at a really significant turning point in her life. Um, so Madeline was, um, kind of just to put her in context a little bit, she was born roughly 20 years after C.S. Lewis was born. So 1918, um, she grew up in New York city. She was an only child and had relatively artistic, um, parents who came from wealthy backgrounds. Um, but she grew up very much alone and read a lot of books, including George MacDonald, who was also a significant influence on C.S. Lewis. Um, so she wasn't churched, really. I mean, she was Episcopalian with her family, but they rarely went to church. Um, and she went to Episcopal boarding schools and Anglican boarding schools um, and so became familiar with the, wor the words of the liturgy, the Book of Common Prayer, um, read the King James Bible, her literature professors in college encouraged her to continue to do that. Um, but she really was on a journey of asking big cosmic questions, especially after her father died when she was 17. And those cosmic questions had to do with like, if there, if this God made everything and supposedly loves us, why suffering? Why the suffering of small children? Why um, allow for horrible, horrible things to happen in the world? Um, and so in, she was raising young kids. They had moved to rural Connecticut in the 1950s. And um, her pastor at the, the, at the congregational church that she went to, even though she told him I'm an atheist, <laughs> Um, knew that she was asking questions and gave her German theologians to read. Um, he figured, you know, she's an intellectual apparently, so maybe um, she would enjoy these and she hated them. So maybe like Rudolf Bultmann might have been a strong contender on the list, um, philosopher Immanuel Kant. And it was just, she was not interested. But Albert Einstein died in 1955. 
and she started reading him. She started reading Max Planck, who was a particle theorist. And all of a sudden, she began to recognize that if this God who made all of this vast, vast cosmos could, in fact, choose to become one of us out of his great love for us, then Christianity was something worth um, believing in. And she credits scientists with her return to Christian faith. And then she wrote A Wrinkle in Time, 1959 is when she started writing it. And so that was a pivotal moment for her. It not only launched her career, she was a Newbery winner in 1963, and off she was um, running as an author. But it was just a hugely significant moment for her spiritually. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the the book and the spiritual uh, elements that are are in it, and and then we can kind of use that as a segue into whether the the, the film honors that or not. So, uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. uh, what is it about the book that resonates so significantly with those of the Christian faith and in general and or specifically, and in general, young women in particular, because uh, uh, I have two daughters who are now grown women who loved, loved, loved uh, the, the book growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, I read it, and I, I maybe it's just being a guy. I, I thought, well, okay, we have a protagonist who is a young woman, and you can you can still get behind her and, and see the... Uh, the development that she is going through. Mm-hmm. So, so speak to that if you would. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the spiritual element is is pretty significant because she says that she wrote the book as a rebuttal to the German theologians. They had, um, in her mind, they had taken faith and kind of broken it down into sort of logical reasoned arguments and she saw in science the sense of wonder and awe of a limitless god who cannot be contained in boxes whose work we are still uncovering with surprise and astonishment um his creativity and um and in the miracle that such a god would choose to become human in jesus um out of his great love for us is is where was her starting point for um, a wrinkle in time and it it begins with um, this young female protagonist like you said like you said and she's um, she's an unusual figure in science fiction at the time so 1962 when it came out you wouldn't have seen a lot of science fiction for children nor would you have seen a female protagonist in science fiction who's quite as believable as Meg um, she's on this quest to find her missing father. She goes on the journey with her friend Calvin and her little brother, Charles Wallace, who's just this incredibly bright, intuitive child. And um, and along the way, there are a couple key moments. Um, one is that they are um, being guided on this journey by uh, three characters, Mrs. What's it, Mrs. Who and Mrs. Witch, um, who is, they are not witches, despite um, a lot of misunderstandings about that. It's a joke that the one is called Mrs. Witch, as in which person is this? It was meant to be funny, but it's been so maligned and twisted. Um, and then, um, but they are in fact um, angelic beings who are there to help the children on their journey. And um, 
and the father has been trapped behind the darkness that is slowly taking over different parts of the universe. Um, and interestingly, the the manifestation of that darkness darkness is a disembodied brain, um, which is if you think about how it's not uncommon to talk about the mind behind the creation of the universe that there's this that there's this that that God being not embodied. Um, is a spirit out there is just this mind out there. And for her, that was horrific. Like that you would think of the one who created the universe as purely um, just a a brain or a mind out there, as opposed to someone who took on human flesh and walked amongst us as Jesus. That was, that there's incredibly important image there. Um, and the only way that they are able to conquer um, and escape from the darkness um, is Meg realizes because a mind cannot love, a, a mind without a body cannot love us. Um, and so she is empowered by love to, um, to enable the rescue both of her father and her brother. Um, at the end. And that's, that's significant too, because a, a mind without a body can't love us um, the way that God in Christ who became, you know, who took on human flesh to be with us can. Um, so there, that, that's, I think, what, if you want to distill the spiritual aspect of the book down into its components, those are, those are some of the key ones. Well, how and and where and where doesn't the the film get that correct? Uh, the the film is directed by Ava Marie Duvernay, and the screenplay was written by Jennifer Lee, who wrote uh, Disney's Frozen. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, the movie had me for a, a good thirty percent at the beginning. I thought this this could be very very good, and then it sort of kind of uh, sifted through my fingers because it, it, it it's to me it, be, it became a little bit more of a, a girl power movie as opposed to a uh, where the girl finds the power within herself by by following her own dreams and her own talents rather than finding that um, that some of these talents are have come from without her instead of from within her mm-hmm mm-hmm well I mean it's it's been in that sense, like sort of typically disnified. Like I, I, <laughs> I mean, Jennifer Lee, um, as the screenwriter for that, um, is, is not doing anything unusual for Disney by sort of, um, washing out the uniquely Christian aspects of the story. Um, there were really no surprises there for me about that. Um, and there's actually a really good review related to that by Tara Isabella Burton on Vox. If you, if you get a chance to look that up, I think that she nails, um, she nails it exactly why that's um, potentially problematic. Um, so then the screenplay goes to Ava DuVernay who directed um, Selma, which was an Academy Award winning film about the march in Alabama in 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. civil rights march and all the other people that were involved in that march and so if if you've seen that film you know that she does not shy away from the christianity 
of the people in the story. She doesn't shy away from that theme at all. And of course, David Oleyowo, who plays Martin Luther King Jr., is a very outspoken, not shy at all Christian. Um, and there's tremendous respect, I think, for faith in that film. Um, and so I don't think that the white, the sort of washing out of the faith elements of the story I don't think we put that at Ava's feet. I don't think that that's something she did to the story. She took the screenplay and did what she could with it um, as the director. And, and these are speculation on my part, but I think that what she did do, and so when you're talking about girl power, I think there's some truth in that, but what she did do is she said, okay, so I have this script. I have this classic story. I have this like rabid fans out there who want to see this film. Um, and yet this, this story passed her by. She grew up in Compton. She didn't ever read this story. It passed by a lot of African-American girls um, because the protagonist was not a child of color. Um, so she takes that story and she says, okay, if um, Madeline could do a radical thing in the 60s and make her protagonist female, what would be the radical thing now, but to take that child and make her multiracial, uh, a black child, and, um, and let that be the radical thing, and then celebrate that now 13-year-old black girl is on the screen larger than life um, with a Mrs. Who and Mrs. What's It and Mrs. Which, who are all different races, um, and let's celebrate that so that if you are a seven to 14 year old African-American child or girl of color, you finally have somebody who looks like you. The story has been made accessible for you demographically in ways that it never has been before. Um, and so if we're gonna have to give up, if you will, this beloved story, if we're gonna have to let go of the thing, some of the things that we love about the story, whether it's some of the spiritual elements or whatever, I am happy to give it up to these girls that have never had a protagonist who looks like them. Um, I, I, I really think that if we have to give it up, first of all, we, we don't get to be proprietary about a story that never belonged to us in the first place. Secondly, <laughs> um, if we have to give it up, this is for the best possible reason. Um, and so I have to hand it to Ava. She's like, all right, here it is. I'm going to take this and I'm going to, um, I'm going to give these girls something they will never forget and how affirming that is for them. Plus, so many of them now are going and reading the book who had never read it before. Oh, right. I, I went to uh, the local bookstore to, to find a copy and uh, it wasn't on the shelves. It wasn't in uh, young adult. It wasn't in science yeah. fiction. Yep. It wasn't in literature. Yep. And uh, finally, in frustration, I looked at uh, one of the store employees who is mm -hmm. maybe a third my age. And I said, well, you know, there's a movie out about a wrinkle in time. And you would think that you'd have a copy of the book. He said, well, yeah, it's right on that table in front of you, old man. And so, uh, <laughs> so one of their featured products. Well, and right. I have a, um, a friend who's a bookstore owner and they just kept selling out. So like as soon as they could order more, they were selling out. Um, it's been sitting at number one on Amazon, you know, in the top five on publisher with weekly's lists. Like it's it's just been um, tremendous. Uh, the way that the film has opened up the story to a whole dem demographic that um, 
that it missed before. And how amazing. Like, so here they go. They read the story and the spiritual elements are there. It's, it's not like, it's not like the book vanished. And now all we have is the film. Like the book is still there with the spiritual themes intact. And now a whole new generation of students of all different demographics are reading it. That's exciting to me. So would it be fair to say that, uh, you think that one complements the other and that they're not working at cross purposes. If we were to speak specifically of the spiritual thrust of the story for Madeline as a Christian, I think that the, the emphasis on finding what you need inside yourself um, is maybe a little too overblown in the film. At the same time, she cannot go on that journey without the misses helping her. Um, that's huge. Okay. She doesn't just, this doesn't just happen um, because uh, she takes it upon herself and does it all herself. She's not a superhero. She has to have help. Right. Um, and I think that, I think that that you can't miss that theme. She has to have help from the biggest Oprah the world has ever known. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, if, if you're eight years old, Forget about the rest of the plot. That's going to be seared in your brain forever. Like she can't do this without help from some some pretty powerful and amazing people. Great. I want that theme to be there. There are adult figures that she can trust. I think that that's tremendous. Absolutely. Um, I I and, also and go think, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I well, I was going to say, say that, that uh, I, uh -huh. I mean, I think the Storm Reed, who plays Meg, is a, a terrific young actress, and I think she did a wonderful job uh, exactly by, by reining in the, the potential histrionics, yep. because some of the book, when she is emotional, becomes somewhat histrionic, and I think uh, the direction mm -hmm. that uh, Storm Reed uh, is given and the restraint mm -hmm. that she exercises on her own really make for a much more compelling Meg. And I, yes. I think she does and a fantastic I, job. She did. And she had a good director, too, who played that up rather than said, you know, rather than said, no, you got to get madder. You know, um, I, I think that that they they complemented each other beautifully in that so that sh her strengths as an actress were amplified rather than overridden. Um, and I was going to go right there to Storm Reid um, in my comments as well, because I think that. I think that Meg now, if possible, has become more than she is in the book rather than reduced. I, she, she is now unforgettably Storm Reed, um, and her character is enriched by that. Um, and, and so I, I think Storm makes the movie. Like, oh, forget I, about all of these. Forget about all of these other, you know, really well-known actors and actresses. I mean, kudos to them for letting her take center stage, too. Um, I'm just, I was so impressed. Um, right. I think she raises, that. I think she raises the source material from, you know, archetypal to something that's really flesh and blood. And if, if, if Storm Reed were yep. a baseball player, I would get her, her rookie card because <laughs> she's, she's that <laughs> yes. good. Uh, one yeah. of the other things that, uh, that, that did bother me about the film though, was the absence of the character of, uh, anti-beast. Yes. Yeah, Aunt Beast is the one who brings healing to Meg after she um, tries to um, to test her um, after she's you know left Kamazots where her father has been imprisoned and they they have to leave and they have to leave Charles Wallace there which she does not want to do um, and that that is a really another moment 
where the healing or the resolution in the story comes from outside of herself, that she can't fix herself in this moment. She needs help from outside, um, from somebody with uh, the power to heal. And that, that is an element missing. And I think, um, I think it's kind of like, I, I heard um, Charlotte Jones Boyglis, who is Madeline's granddaughter, talk about how there's these like little details that you miss like the mom doesn't cook the dinner on a bunsen burner um (laughs) those are things that are just beloved of madeline fans and they were true to like the stories as they continue in the time content and aunt beast is in some ways one of those things um even though she has important spiritual significance um it's sort of like i don't know tom bombadil being absent from the lord of the rings movies (laughs) it's like he's sort of larger than life like we're not even really sure why he's there because he doesn't show up again but um you know we love the things that we love and it's hard to see them go Terrific. Well, that's about all we have time for today. I would like to thank you, Sarah Arthur, for being here today to speak about A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, it's been delightful. Thank you. Sarah Arthur is the author of the upcoming biography of Madeline Lengel, A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Lengel, author of A Wrinkle in Time. She is a writer-in-residence for the Frederick Beekner Workshop at Princeton Theological Seminary, a graduate of Wheaton College and Duke University Divinity School, and uh, all in all, wonderful guest. And again, thank you so much for being here. It's been so fun. Thanks, Bruce. You're very welcome. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you next week. And that wraps up today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Also, if you'd like to contact our podcast team or if you have questions for the Acton Institute that you would like to hear answered in future segments of the podcast, you can always leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan